Well, I am Nick. Um, those videos were unexpected and they were moving and uh, they meant a lot. Um, from the outset, I just want to say this. Uh, today's not about me. Uh, it matters to me. It matters a whole lot to me. It really, really matters to me, but it, it really ain't about me. Um, one of the goals of my marriage, I said at our rehearsal dinner, there was no other preacher for that wedding, by the way. Uh, I'm going to keep my shirt on too, okay? <laughs> but I said at my rehearsal dinner, one of the goals for our marriage is that Kristen and I would be mentioned in the same breath. It would be so close over the duration that God would give us together that we would be mentioned in the same breath. It would be like Nick and Kristen, Nick and Kristen, Nick and Kristen. But those of you who know me know it's really just like Kristen, then Nick, right? But here's the deal. She's the real superstar of our family. Brittany, I see you. You know. She's the real superstar of our family, but this day is bigger than our family. In my opinion, this day is bigger than Fondren Church. You see, today is really about following the king, saying yes to him first, and doing the work of his kingdom. I have been at the church here since the church began. But I've had the joy of serving as one of your pastors for the last six and a half years. Today, I'm going to try to communicate and synthesize a decade plus in about half an hour, and I can't. I'm going to say some words. I don't know how many are going to come out of my mouth, but if you hear any words from my mouth today, hear these two. Thank you. You mean a lot to me. Thank you. Today's a heavy day for me. It's a farewell, and I'm scared of it. There's just not enough time. I, and there never will be enough time. I've had two and a half months to do this, y'all. And there's still so many of you that I want to share time with. But tomorrow my run ends here. I'm heavy. But this heaviness in my heart reveals a weight that matters. The substance. There's real matter in my heart today. I, I, I woke up early to exercise to try to get some of this nervous energy out of me. I can't. It's not like some endorphin chemical for me to release. It's in me. So wherever I go, it comes with me. Okay. Again, tomorrow my day, my run ends here. I moved to Texas. Church, I'm very excited about this, but I grieve this. And in my grief, I have refle reflected deeply. In my reflection, I've learned that all I really, really want is to make my contribution. That's it. To make some kind of difference to matter at some level to count. I just want to take what God has given me and bet those talents on his goodness and his faithfulness. That's it. I just want to make my contribution. Not power, that's my driving motivation, not money, power, fame, just my little contribution in the world. Now, I know we finished up Ecclesiastes last Sunday, but uh, I'd like to take us back in it. Robert can't fire me anymore. So I'm going to go back to Ecclesiastes. We're going to go into chapter 7. As I've thought and I've reflected, this passage that we're going to read today, just it, it just kind of summarizes the season that my family's been in. And I hope it encourages you. Let's read it. Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 through 4. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Robert preached this passage a few weeks ago, and he preached it a lot better than me, but today you're going to get my heart, okay? And I hope my heart encourages you. So the day of death, it's better than the day of birth. The house of mourning, like a funeral, is better than a house of feasting. Funerals are better than feasts. The day of death is better than the day of birth. That's a really curious thing to say. Why? 
Funerals make us think. They make us consider what really matters. Funerals have a way of driving this sense of urgency in us that we just can't do on our own because time is short and we do have a limit. The end of a thing makes you think about what matters, the real substantive stuff of life. It makes you think about the heart of the matter. In the end, we all want to believe that our life matters. So what's the matter with me, with you, with us? What is the real substance of our lives? Why am I so heavy today to go and do a thing that I know God has asked me to do? Why are farewells so hard? Farewells are hard because you leave behind things that really matter. (sighs) That said, if you're new here, or maybe a new member, maybe even you're not even a believer, my prayer is that you would stay, that you would invest, that you would give, that you would receive, and you would experience some of what my family has experienced here. This is a place of authenticity. This is a place where relationships can grow, where you can grow roots deep. This is a place where the Lord is, and that's the truth of Fondren Church. Farewells are hard because you leave behind things that really matter. Church, you have taught me so much. You've taught me what matters, our faith, our family, and the fight of our lives. You know, three F's because it's fondering and it's kind of like farewell. Our faith matters. Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 10 says this, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Church, the faith that matters involves taking action, taking active steps toward the unknown, to the things that you can't really see. Look, it was by faith that Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out. So this wasn't Abraham's plan. It was not his idea to leave home. It was God's idea. Faith leads to obedience to God's promise and his calling on your life. Abraham obeyed, even though he didn't know where he was going. It was unfamiliar, and I have to imagine it was quite uncomfortable for him. Yet he still took active steps toward the unknown. The secret to Abraham's great faith was his hope and the fulfillment of God's promise. Abraham was looking forward to that city that has foundations, meaning he expected it. He expected it. He was hungry for this new city. He was so dissatisfied with what he could see that he looked for the better city. But he didn't just throw a penny in the fountain. He didn't wish it in to happen. No, he acted. He took steps. Abraham took steps to the unknown and lived in the land of promise as a stranger, as if it were in a foreign land. God's ultimate promised land to Abraham is heaven, just as it is for you and for me and anyone else who's in Christ. Just like Abraham, we are citizens of heaven. So there should be some things that don't make sense about us on paper and to the world. As strangers in this land, we don't belong to the place that we can see. We actually belong to the place that we can't see. And as we know, the people of faith, God's people, we desire a better faith, so we can't be okay with what we do see. Let's check in here. Are you comfortable? Are you content? Do you feel good about what you see? If so, that's a danger zone. You are here, we are here, because we are God's plan A to change the world. We must move to what we can't see. We must move to what is unseen. Things will never change if we don't move forward. We long for the better, we envision the better, and we take steps toward the better city. Many of us have big dreams and big plans, and some of us even do take those active steps to the city. Look, 
Faith leads to obedience, but fear can get in the way. Fear turns you around when God calls you to go out by faith. Fear is often the obstacle that makes us turn around. In Numbers 13, y'all know this story. We're on the cusp, the land of, we're on the land of the milk and honey. We're on the cusp of taking the land that God had promised to his people, the family of God. They've been through a lot together. They're right on the verge. God had promised this land to them, so what'd they do? They sent out some spies, 12 of them. Sent out 12 spies to scope out the land. Now, 10 of them came back with a negative report. Y'all know this. They came back, what, what were they afraid of? They were afraid of the locals. They said, we are like grasshoppers compared to them. In other words, we ain't got what it takes. We ain't got what it takes. Now, two of these guys, they came back with real faith, the kind of authentic faith that doesn't make sense, you know, doesn't make sense in, in, in light of the seen reality. But unfortunately, the majority won, and God's people turned around. They turned around from the land of promise to the land of wandering, where they languished in the wilderness for 40 years. I've often wondered, what if they had just believed God's promise? If they would have believed, would they have wandered for so long? Would they have wasted so much time? I don't want to question the sovereignty of God, but these are some questions that I've got. Would they have wasted so much time? A friend of mine says this, fear can point the way, but it must never be the way. So what fear is turning you around from stepping out in faith? At your office, in your marriage, with your neighbor. Look, I don't know all the specific fears in this room, but here's mine. It's a fear of disappointing other people. I was so afraid of disappointing my family, Kristen's family, Kristen's people, Big Koi, who we named our son after, my team, Robert, y'all. I was so afraid of that that I almost said no to the Lord. But the fear of disappointment, like all the others, is unfounded. Think about it with me and break it down. Disappointment, this means without. Appointment means assigning a position or a task to someone. Acts 17, 26 says this. He says, and he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, allotted, or appointed periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. God called Abraham to go out to the unknown land. God appointed Abraham for the task, just as God appoints you to your task and me for mine. God is the caller, and faithfulness requires to put our yes on the table to God first. I wasn't looking to go. Leaving Finder in church was not the plan. When Kristen and I started to feel God draw our hearts, we didn't want to go. Kristen even says this, I wanted to hate it there. <laughs> Sorry, guys, if you're listening from Texas. We wrestled with God, and he prevailed. We have to go. And at 8.03, on a random Wednesday morning, I was responding to some of your emails, and I got a call out of the blue with a wild idea about maybe working at some other place. I was flattered, and I was humbled, but I knew it was a long shot. It was like the longest Doug Flutie Hail Mary there was. I called Kristen at lunch and she said exactly what I thought. She would say, no shot, Nick. But at the dinner table that night, she changed her tune. She said, Nick, this is so far out of left field. What if this is God speaking? Maybe we should listen. So we did. And eventually we took the family out there for Halloween to breathe the air, kind of meet some of the people. They asked what we wanted. As the date approaches, they, they approached, they asked us what we wanted for the weekend. I said, I don't want you guys to woo us. I don't want you to woo us. If you could put us in the back of your minivan and just ride us around for the weekend, we want to know what a normal weekend looks like. And so we got pizza at the dinner table. We got fifth grade girls basketball. We hung out with their friends as our children played with their children. The kids played a version of capture the flag that they called protect the queen. 
Their kids made my daughter the queen, and they gave her a Baltimore Ravens football helmet for a crown. When I saw my daughter in a princess dress and a football helmet looking up at one of their kids, God did something in my heart that I just cannot explain to you today. We went to worship the next morning, and God continued to work in our hearts. On the drive home, Chris and I were silent for an hour, and I finally broke the silence. I said, babe, what, what's going on? What do you think? What do you feel? And she said, I'm ticked off. And I responded, I'm frustrated. We both knew that God had done something in our hearts that would require us to prayerfully consider something we simply did not want to do. And perhaps force us to have conversations that we simply did not want to have. God continued to work in us, making really big things seem smooth. All the conversations that I was so afraid of went remarkably well. Making sure my responsibilities here at Finder Recovered has gone so well. Y'all, if you don't know, we have a really, really good team here. Really good team. Buying a house, selling a house, Kristen's job, school for the kids. Everything has gone smoothly. It doesn't mean that it hadn't been very hard, but it has gone smooth. We have been jarred. God grew our roots deep here, and he is now uprooting us from this place, and it hurts a whole lot. Like Jacob wrestling with the Lord, we will be marked forever, and it hurts. It hurts because y'all matter so much to us. But Kristen and I and many others are convicted that God's hand is in this and that he's asking us to go. So what do you do when God says go? You say yes, and you box up your wife's dream home, and you go because our home is not, our dream home is not in the city here. It is in the city with foundations. Church, faithfulness does require us to put our yes on the table to God and do that first. And the, there's a cost to that yes. I'm just learning that. I want you all to know. When, he, when we put our yes on the table to God, there is a cost to that. But he is worthy of the cost. And following God with your whole heart is worth the price. Our faith adds substance and matter to our life. So what fear is turning you around from stepping out in faith? Our faith matters. Our family matters too. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author of Hebrews is talking to the church. In the church is this beautiful place where fathers can become sons. Sons can become brothers. It's my prayer for my son. And friends can become brothers and sisters. The church is a family, and in the church, faith doesn't just flow down anymore from generation to generation. It can flow up. It can flow sideways. In the family of God, faith flows 360 degrees, and praise God for that. So family... Stir each other up, provoke each other, incite a revolution of love and good deeds right here in this moment, right where you are. You don't have to go anywhere to do that. Serve day is next week. Sign up, show up, and let that be a pattern and a trend for the rest of your days. Gather, get in here for worship. Get around fire pits, dinner tables, at kids' ball games. Play some good old-fashioned board games. Share life together. Orchestrate your lives so they intentionally overlap with other brothers and sisters. Encourage, put courage into each other. Strengthen one another, admonishing and exhorting. After Robert broke the news on January the 2nd, Kristen and I have been showered with the kindest words that honestly they really feel undeserved. Your words have lifted us while we have wrestled with doubt, fear, anxiety, and all sorts of heaviness. 
You will never know what your words have meant to us and how the Lord has used your encouragement to carry us forward and literally help us be faithful. We attended a banquet to appreciate our deacons. And at the end of the thing, they stood up and appreciated us. I didn't expect that and moved both of us to tears. Your words have put courage into us when we simply have lacked it. Now, I'm going to exhort a little bit. I get to do that. I get to push on y'all a little bit, right? Because our words matter, church. And your words matter. The end of the thing teaches us the matter of a thing. The end reminds us of how time is so short. We tend to say things at funerals at the end that we ought to say in the everyday stuff of our life. So what if we said things like this when they come to mind instead of waiting to the end? Church, your words matter, and they have the power to build up. They do. And church, the world doesn't talk like you. The world's voice is destructive. It will break you down. It will tear you down. But that is not the voice of a father, and it is not the voice of his children. Speak truth and love, and we will grow up into every way into him who is the head into Christ. That's Ephesians 4.15. All our relationships add matter and substance to your life. Who do you know that needs to hear a word of encouragement now? Don't wait till it's too late. Our faith matters, our family matters, and now the fight of your life matters. The fight of your life is what I call your deepest passion, your God-given motivating force. It is the flame of your life that you must fan. Every generation has a moment where time stops and you know exactly where you were. Pearl Harbor was it for my grandparents. The assassination of JFK was it for my parents. 9-11 was it for me. These moments created outrage. They moved people to tears. They moved people to action. Action based off a spirit that was fighting mad. I was 17 on 9-11. When George W. Bush threw that first pitch strike in Yankee Stadium, I was mad. I was moved to act. I actually got up the next day and went to the recruiter's office and tried to enlist. And the the recruiter said, go home, son, and tell your parents. My parents are going to be 11. I'm going to tell them then. I figure it's time to come clean 20 years later. Look, you can get mad. You can get fighting mad. What are you so passionate about that compels you to act? We need to fight for something. It adds substance and meaning to your life. So back to the end. Back to the funeral. Jesus got fighting mad. And we see that at a funeral. In John 11, Jesus got mad at what he saw. And he was moved to act because of it. This is when... Jesus raised his buddy, Lazarus, from the grave. You know it. Now, Jesus deeply loved Lazarus and his family. But when Christ heard that Lazarus had gotten pretty bad sick, he waited. He delayed. I believe that Jesus delayed intentionally to set up the house of mourning. That's what we do when people pass on, right? We gather and we mourn at a funeral. In verse 15 of chapter 11, Jesus tells us the reason that he delayed, and he said it's so that you may believe. When Jesus visited the family, Lazarus' sister, Martha, she lies a little complaint. She said, Lord, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said to her, Jesus replied like this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? In other words, Jesus is saying, this is who I am. This is what my existence is. He doesn't just say that he can provide the resurrection and the life. He says that I exist as the resurrection and the life. So whoever believes in Jesus will never die. 
Eternal life and the rescue from the finality of death are not just simply gifts that to be obtained from God. They are also aspects of what it means to live a life in faithful association with Jesus. Now, when Christ arrived at the funeral, here's what he saw. He saw weeping, loud, public grief. When he saw this, he was deeply moved and troubled in spirit. Then the shortest verse of the Bible, he wept. For years, I thought Jesus was moved to tears like he was just simply sad. He was moved, but I don't think he was just sad. In fact, the word there is odd. It doesn't mean grieved or sad. It means just the opposite. It means indignant. It means mad. It means outraged. It means fury. It means it paints this picture of a war horse snorting with anger. Jesus was fighting mad. He was outraged, but why? He was angry, but not at the mourners. He was angry at the futility of what he saw. A people overcome with defeat, yet victory stood in their midst. The reality of the resurrection stood right there with him. He was mad at death. He was mad at the devastation that it brings, at the chaos, the wailing, and the crying, the cemetery. All of these reminders of death. He was mad at the result of sin, and it moved him to tears. He had to do something about it. He goes to the tomb, and he was moved again. Same word. He's outraged at the tomb. He's mad at what he will soon endure. He has him take the stone door away. Then, in the presence of the crowd, he commanded Lazarus to come out, and the dead are brought to life. And many believed in him. This was the reason that he left the, left the throne. He was crying mad. He was fighting mad. And all of this points to the cross where sin was forever defeated. We call this his passion. Jesus' passion is what fueled him to fight for you. Hear me now. Jesus entered into your pain, your sorrow, your grief before he destroyed his power forever. He felt what you feel. He felt what I feel. And he felt it far more. Farewells are hard because you leave behind the things that matter. But you matter so much to God that he gave his life for you. In Jesus, there is a hope of a new life, a blessing, a hope of blessing that is yet to come. Jesus came with a perfect reputation and he willingly traded for the, for the reputation of a criminal as he took our place on the cross. Then he rose again and appeared again to over 500 people to prove his victory over death. Jesus is how we can affirm that the day of death is better than the day of birth. Jesus is how we can say that farewells are not the end. And our role in this is just to trust him, to believe him, to know that there's far more to life than the farewell. There's this story of a man who went to Calcutta looking for Mother Teresa. He went to, the, to work. He went to work at the house of dying to figure out how he could actually make his life matter. When he finally met Mother Teresa, he asked her to pray for him, and she asked him, well, what do you want me to pray for? He said, clarity. Pray that I have clarity. Mother Teresa said, no, I will not do that. Clarity is what you must let go of. And she laughed and said, I have never had clarity. What I have always had is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. Now, I like clarity. Y'all know me. Y'all know I like clarity. But I'm learning that knowing something with absolute clarity is a waste of time and it's a waste of my faith. When we're certain, we don't have room for faith. Faith is not necessary when we have certainty. It's only in uncertainty that faith can manifest and grow. So if we're sitting around, if you're sitting around waiting for clarity, you're going to be waiting for a long time. Faith and trust are what's necessary. My hope for Finder and Church is the quotient of your faith would grow, that your trust in the provider would deepen, and that you would experience his presence in ever-increasing amounts as you wait for him and trust. 
We don't need more clarity to figure out how to make our lives matter. We just need more trust. So as the team comes on up, let me say, the fight of Jesus' life was for your salvation. My fight is just to make my contribution and to do that through people. I just want to be used by God to turn your hearts to Jesus and then turn you loose on the world. That was my motivation to leave law practice and work for the church, and I set out to do that every day. But here's the deal. In my faith to make my contribution, I've learned that you have made a lasting contribution on me. You sat with me when I was alone. You've come alongside us to teach our kids a love for God, his church, and his word. You've humored our family's long rants about the SEC sports while proudly wearing your Tar Heel blue. You've tolerated my daughter showing up to your formal events in Disney princess dresses. You've given me a shot, you pushed me, and you taught me to swim in the deep end of ministry. You've been there for us when we've heard no over 60 times on our adoption journey. You bought our t-shirts, our squares, and our art. We're still waiting. You were there to see my son take his first steps at small group, and that's something. You built little free libraries with me so that families could read together. You strung up patio lights in the meeting and hosted happy hours with us to draw people out of isolation during the lockdown. And then when we were forced to take those lights down, you kept it going. You invited people in your home for monthly breakfasts. You've learned with me that good things happen when people open the Bible together. You've shown up early on Tuesday mornings, drank smoothies, and studied the word with me. You've answered every phone call, and you've kept every track of every penny in your blue finance team folder. You've broken two-inch thick sheets of ice on the church ground so that a bride could enjoy the warmth of this sanctuary on her day. You've shown up for me, and then you let me baptize you. You've shown up on our doorstep at the darkest hours, consoling us after miscarriage. You've taken care of our kids when Kristen had to rush me to the emergency room. Ducks fly together. You've learned that the gospel is really good news, but we are not too good to practice it. You've shared the gospel and you've seen the, the tears of faith and repentance fall like rain as people have passed from death to life in front of our very eyes. You preached through translators in different languages. You prayed together and you prayed for me. You sat with me seeking understanding through tears on, the, on opposite sides of an issue that we both care about. You coached Little League Baseball and flag football with me, teaching our boys the fundamentals to have fun without getting too crazy about all the trophies just yet. You've gone on vacations with us. We've done Disney. We did all Disney. We climbed some mountains. We fell down some mountains. You've gone to the beach with me just to do the Murph workout with me. You've hunted, you've fished, you've kayaked, and we've lost car keys and rivers. Then you broke into my home for our spare set and drove 45 minutes to come pick me up. You put on Christmas pajamas, listened to the crooners with us, and drank out of teacups at our house. You taught me that the meeting after the meeting is really the real reason why you come to the meeting in the first place. You've let me serve in the elder room with my father-in-law. You've told me, I don't, want to I don't want you to leave, but I'm not going to stand in the way of the Lord either. You've given me the gift of learning that in the end we are not nearly as necessary as we think, but we are far more loved than we think. You shared a fire pit with me. You taught me to run slower, to taste, to see, to savor, to Sabbath. You let me disciple you, and you have discipled me. 
You let me lead, you let me fail, and you let me learn on the job. You fed us meals after babies. You fed us when Kristen was on the front line of COVID, and you fed us meals when we were down with COVID. You fed us the word and we were beat down and we were broken and we were fatigued in the fight. You carried us. <laughs> During Kristen's long days of med school and residency. And you drove from Vicksburg to show up here. You helped us move twice and then you ate crawfish on the front yard on fake leather couches. <laughs> you humored us and played board games and I know you like that. You reminded me time and again that I am just a turtle on a fence post. You taught me that life is truly better than when you live it together, loving one another in front of other people. You have given me more than I have given you. You run hundreds of miles with me, and we finished every one of them together except for the most recent mile. I won't call it our last mile. I stopped just short of the finish line. That's because the run, like the cliffhanger of Acts 28, ain't over. When people ask, where is the church? Robert would tell you, and he is right. The church is where God's people are. Founder in church, all these yous are you. You are the church. One family comes, one family goes, but the church prevails to the finish and beyond it. Founder in church, God has used you to shape and form me, and I am so grateful to the Lord for you. Farewells are hard. They're hard because of all the matter that you leave behind. You matter to me and you matter to this place. Stay trusting and stay faithful. Farewells are hard, but the good news is that they are not the end. So until we meet again, farewell, Founder Church.